Welcome to Write Good, the only podcast that helps you write good. I'm Raquel Benedict, the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. In this episode, we're talking to Johnny Pickering, founder and editor-in-chief of online dark fiction magazine, Seize the Press. Johnny, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and I'm very excited to talk about your magazine. It is doing quite well, considering it's so so new. It's gotten a lot of attention. I've been really surprised by the amount of attention it's got, actually. It's not something I ever expected to happen, but it's been a very pleasant surprise and a, a nice journey to go on, I guess. Yeah, it's gotten, I, I know, it's gotten added to some reading lists or maybe gotten some nominations for something, I think. Yeah, yeah. I can probably go into more detail about that later on, but yeah, that's got a lot more attention than I ever expected. People who run very respected presses that I have a lot of respect for have highlighted some of the stories that we've run, given them awards, putting them on short lists. Yeah, very surprising, but very, very nice. Yeah, so let's dive in. Why did you start Seize the Press? It was quite a convoluted journey, actually, to get to what it ended up being. So originally it started out as a nonfiction magazine in my head. So I actually used to run a book review blog, nothing particularly serious, or I wasn't doing any particularly deep literary criticism or anything. I was just running a, a book blog that I talked about books I was reading. You get involved in any online community. There was a, a book blogging community that I got involved in. And I found in certain parts of that community, there was a bit of a culture of sort of running PR campaigns for books rather than seriously reviewing them. Negative reviews were often looked down upon. There was often a lack of a, a willingness to do any serious criticism or analysis in genre fiction. And I guess there, there was a particular incident where I got invited on to do, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of a, of a blog tour, but if not, and for the benefit of the listeners, a blog tour is basically when a book is released and either the sort of the marketing people or the, the writer, if it's a self-published book, they'll contact a bunch of book reviewers, bloggers, and arrange like a tour for people to review the book. So I got on one of those and I ended up really not liking the book, but one of the sort of stipulations of part of being part of the tour was that you couldn't post the review as part of the tour if you didn't like the book, which I found just insane. It was basically like the the market is paying for positive reviews. And I actually made a, a, a blog post after the fact talking about this and how people were basically paying for positive PR. I mean, it caused a bit of, um, yeah, there's a few days where it caused a bit of upset in, in that particular community. Um, yeah, I can see people freaking out about, oh, yeah. you, you told, you tattled, you blew the whistle. Yeah, and people particularly weren't happy that I, I named the book in, in the post. So I said, oh, you know, I, I was on this blog tour, this is the book, I didn't like it. And yeah, so I found it very strange that, one, there was people paying for bloggers to do unpaid PR for these books, and be that the reaction to me saying I didn't like the book was so hostile. So yeah, that, that that's basically just a, a, me saying that the lack of serious criticism or even a willingness to engage in criticism in that kind of genre community was, I found it very bizarre. Not long after that, I started thinking about potential outlets for starting some kind of some kind of online magazine or something to talk about serious criticism or like just book reviews that were actually frank, honest and open and were willing to engage in actual criticism of genre books. Not long after that, I was, I was introduced to Blood Knife, but I can't remember who it was now, but I just posted something out on Twitter and someone said, hey, have you, have you heard of Blood Knife magazine? They pretty much do all, all this stuff that you're talking about. It already exists. And I was like, oh, cool. So I looked into Blood Knife and found out, oh, hey, this brilliant new online magazine is doing all the things that I was wanting to do. So I thought, okay, well, there's not so much need for me to start my own thing when Blood Knife is already doing such a fantastic job. But this was also sort of around the same time that I'd started feeling a little bit off 
about a lot of the short fiction I was reading as well. Um, I can't imagine why. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's something a lot of right good listeners will be familiar with, but there's... Something that we harp on constantly. Yeah. But yeah, so the idea in my head sort of pivoted to running a magazine of short fiction that would, would hopefully be something of an antidote to that kind of saccharine, shallow short fiction that was dominating in a lot of the big genre magazines, particularly science fiction and fantasy. Horror, horror not so much, but certainly a lot of the short fiction, science fiction and fantasy short fiction I was reading. I thought, look, there's got to be, there's got to be people out there writing the stuff that isn't being published and yeah if, if i can start somewhere that will give us give space to that then then i'll feel like i'm doing something positive and that that's yeah that that's that's basically how sees the press in its current incarnation came about that i started wanting to run short fiction that was that would be a give yeah just a magazine that would give space to better fiction <laughs> right right I see what you mean. So it started as, in your head, started as a nonfiction venue, but it turned out that that niche was already filled. So you decided to build your own platform to run short genre fiction that's good and yeah. not the kind of stuff that's already running. We still do run some nonfiction as well, obviously, and reviews as well. So we started running. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but it is mostly fiction. Yeah, most, mostly, yeah. Yep. All right. So how long did it take you to launch Seize the Press? What was the process like from start to finish? Probably around four months from me having the idea to it actually becoming a thing that people knew knew about. And I mean, to be honest, I, I didn't know what I was doing at the time. If I was aware of how much I didn't know at the time, I probably would never have set out to do it. So there was a lot of the learning process. Mm. It was a steep learning curve. I had a lot of fun with it. It was probably around, let's like say, four months from having the idea to it going into, into a, a real life thing. Mm. All right. So what is the ethos of Seize the Press? So we're an anti-capitalist magazine. I'm a socialist, have been since I was old enough to be politically aware. So a lot of the, I guess a lot of the stories are kind of have a an anti-capitalist tint to them, but not in a didactic way. It's one of the things that I really didn't want to to have to be publishing. We do sometimes get people submitting stories that are something along the lines of bad capitalist man does bad thing to worker, worker rises up and and overcomes. And it's, it, it's not the kind of thing I'm, I'm really interested in, to be honest. Um, mm. There's a lot of sort of, I find in the, the sort of dominant, liberal sff establishment stories there's a lot of kind of like liberal didacticism and i think yeah. a lot of a lot of people when we started an anti-capitalist magazine took that to mean oh so you want left-wing didacticism <laughs> like no no yeah um so it can yeah, be we, kind of fun and escapist but it gets really fucking boring yeah exactly i think fundamentally and, what, and you feel a little bit like you're watching a kid's show or reading a kid's book where yeah like, that's it and the, I, the good worker defeated the terrible man with a with a stovepipe hat on yeah that's exactly it fundamentally you want a good story first and foremost i, I don't really want someone dumping their political beliefs into a into a story and passing it off as basically a manifesto passed off as a a fiction story it's not, it's not what we're looking for in the current issue there's a story called a fantastic story called you forever by maxine sophia wolf which is actually told from the perspective of a shitty law enforcement bureaucrat who mm. kind of abuses his position to stalk his ex-girlfriend um Ooh. i mean it's a brilliant story but it's it's told from the perspective of an awful awful narrator someone that like if you as a left-wing person law enforcement and not our friends <laughs> so it's told from the perspective of someone we kind of consider not not a good guy but we kind of trust mm -hmm. our readers to understand it's never explicitly said but we kind of trust our readers to understand yeah. that this story is told from the point of view of the bad guy other than that we have an ethos of publishing uncomfortable stories and i don't mean that in the sense of something that's necessarily going to make you recoil or go and um, I mean it can be that of course but more along the lines of something that might actually make you 
question something you already believe or maybe a story that's being told from the perspective of a character who you would relate to or would be rooting for in most circumstances, but maybe they do something that makes you feel uncomfortable or you don't agree with. They're not perfect people, essentially. I think, so Susan Palumbo, forgive me if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, but she's a fantastic short story writer who I think she put it really well, which she said something along the lines of she likes fiction that doesn't coddle the reader while exploring the human condition. Mm. And that's something that we look for in our stories. Because I I think fundamentally, art that just reinforces something that you already think or already feel or believe just isn't as interesting as something that perhaps makes you uncomfortable with certain aspects of yourself or your place in society or, or how you behave even, even your own individual behavior and situations because people are people at the end of the day. I think there's a, there's a certain move towards, especially among characters and stories of marginalized backgrounds and marginalized, right? The marginalized writers who write them, there's an expectation almost that they are sort of paragons of moral virtue a lot of the time. And I don't know, it's just, it doesn't, it rings really hollow to me because people are people at the end of the day. They, we all make mistakes. None of us are perfect. And even when we're found in, even when we experience really shitty situations, we can behave in ways that aren't ideal. Perhaps yeah. they make the people around us feel bad. And that's just, it's just how we, it's just part of being alive yeah. and existing in the world. And I kind of think it shows an immaturity in art when mm. you want that, when We've made fun of cishead white men for a very long time for writing these sort of hero fantasy narratives about a big self-insert hero man defeating monsters and saving girls. And I think now we've had this explosion of that but diverse. And like, yeah, it can be gratifying if you're in that demographic seeing, ah, someone like me gets to be the generic self-insert boring hero. Mm. But then it's like, Okay, I've seen enough of that. It's time to grow the fuck up. Yeah, and I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. There's definitely room for those kinds of stories. It's just, yeah, I think there's there's just something more interesting to me about exploring stories that aren't that. Yeah, I, I figure I, I get one of those and then that's enough. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's nice. What else you got? All right. <laughs> so... I noticed this magazine focuses on downbeat stories. Why mm. do you specifically choose to focus on downbeat stories? Like in your submissions portal, you say, we want stories where everything isn't wrapped up neatly at the end, and you specifically ask for bleak sci-fi. Mm. You use the word bleak specifically. <laughs> yeah. Let me just preface this by saying that, again, there's there's rooms for all all types of stories. Because I think there's a perception among people who don't agree with what I'm about to say that I somehow, or people who know of that persuasion think that lighthearted stories or stories with happy endings are inherently bad. And that's obviously ludicrous. Mm -hmm. We don't think that. That's not not true. But having said that, my perception of contemporary genre fiction, particularly in short fantasy and science fiction, is that there's this kind of general tendency to boost a sort of triumphalist feel-good mode of story. And again, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But I do find that a lot of the stuff that falls into that category, and especially the stuff that gets a lot of attention in the big sci-fi and fantasy awards, a lot of it is, again, in my opinion, often very shallow, and it fails even to explore its own themes very, very well. There's a sort of the exploration of, of the themes, it's often relegated to an afterthought in service of a kind of debilitating catharsis, like catharsis not in a good way, something that just kind of demobilizes people and makes them feel good, as opposed to actually doing anything about the things, the injustices they're reading about. But also I think there's this focus on representation in fiction and how important it is to see people overcoming the characteristics that marginalize them in the real world, whether that be 
class, sexuality, gender, physical disability, mental illness, and anything like that. And and again, what you like like you just said, what that is important. I also think it's important to give space to writers and readers who want to explore what it's like to not be overcoming those things, maybe to be living with mental illness and be working a dog shit job that makes you feel even worse because you have to buy food and you have to pay the rent and you're feeling shitty about it and you're not overcoming everything because that's not always possible. People don't always get the happy ending in real life and sometimes we want to explore art that recognises that and makes us feel like we're not alone in that struggle and that we're not failures because we didn't bootstrap or girl boss our way out of the sad and depressing situations we find ourselves in at various times in our lives. Yeah, so that that's basically the, the, the reason why I wanted to specifically talk about bleak science fiction, stuff that explores the human condition in ways that, I don't know, allow people to see themselves and in a way that they might be able to recognize if they're not having the best of times. Mm-hmm. Okay, now let's talk about the process. How do you put together an issue of Seize the Press, like, Start to finish, you know, how do you fund it? Who's doing the art? How are you handling web hosting? How are you handling slush reading, editing, so on and so forth? When it comes to web hosting and all that kind of technical jargon, that I, I know nothing about that. I, but one of my good friends thankfully agreed to handle all that side for me because it's not something I'm very good at. So yeah, that all goes on in the background for me, thankfully. But when it comes to funding, Patreon is our... I guess that's our only source of funding at the minute. We have a small number of subscribers. I think we're up to around 80 subscribers at the moment who pay, pay us on Patreon each month. And that goes towards that goes towards paying the the writers, the artists, the designers. So yeah, Patreon's our main source of funding at the moment. When it comes to art... And um, how does the Patreon structure work exactly? I mean, are you paying for access... Are you paying for archives? The When a new issue is released, subscribers basically get full access to that full issue immediately. And they get an, an ebook copy to read. Whereas non-subscribers will typically get the issue released over a staggered period. And it's only available to read online. That was one of the things that I did want to make sure we did. I wanted to make sure that it was freely available to people who couldn't afford to subscribe. But... One thing I have found with the, I don't know, the models of a lot of fiction magazines at the minute is that if they give away everything for free immediately, it's very difficult to draw in any money to pay your creators that way. Because people mm-hmm. just think, well, now everything's immediately free. Why, unless I have some very personal or deep, deeply held connection to the, the people who run it, oh, I really, really like things, really like what they're putting out, then there's no... There's no sort of incentive to actually fund the thing. And it's really difficult, actually, especially now to get people to pay for short fiction because there's so much of it available online for free that yeah. people, are, people are spoiled for choice. Unless they really, really want to read something specific, there's no reason yeah. for them to, to pay for it because they can just go somewhere else and read something else. But thankfully, there does seem to have been a good number of people who have been willing to become subscribers and, and support us, which is nice because it's, it was talking about our ethos. It's very important to me that we pay our creators and we don't pay them enough as, as much as I would like to at the minute. And that will, any additional money that any, that comes into our Patreon in the future will always go towards paying our creators. It's, yeah, it's, it's something I feel very strongly about that people deserve to be paid for their creative work. Slush reading, we have a small team of slush readers who read stuff as it comes in it started out differently we had a larger team to begin with of it was sort of more a more ad hoc basis people could just sort of dip in and read whatever they wanted whenever they wanted and we had a bigger team to accommodate that and that was right at the beginning when we didn't have as many submissions coming in now though it's got to the point where we've got more submissions coming in than i can handle about how many roughly submissions are you getting a month oh probably about Four, between four and five hundred. So I, I basically used to still, even when we had the large slush team, because it was ad hoc and people would just dip in as and when they were able, I was still the one reading most I of the slush. Yeah. Yeah, you, yeah, you were, yeah. It just got to the point now where I'm just physically 
unable to read all the submissions that are coming in. So yeah, we've got a smaller team now, but who have you know committed to reading a certain number of, of slush air stories coming in each month. It's easier to manage what's coming in. When it comes to editing, I I edit all the fiction. Typically the what comes in for the most part I'd say eighty to ninety percent of the stories are pretty much in public publishable condition when they come in. The ones that I decide to publish that is with just some sort of minor changes and and things here and there that that's not too difficult occasionally there will be a story that comes in that i see a lot of potential in but just isn't quite there in those cases i'll i'll work quite closely with the 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 author to get it to where it needs to be to be a seize the press story i do all the fiction editing carlo jaeger rodriguez is our non-fiction editor he does all the non-fiction side when it comes to the art i don't think i mentioned the art Basically, we do, I, I, I tend to just look around on various websites where artists are po- posting their work. I've been following artists on Twitter whose work I like, and I'll just get in touch with them and say, hey, I've seen this piece of yours. Would you be interested in, lic- in, in licensing it to us to use on our cover? And we'll pay them a certain amount for the just for the just to use it on the cover. And usually they're very happy to do it. It's work they've already created. They get to keep all the rights. We're just saying, hey, we'll use it on our cover. We'll give you some money. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Sounds good. And J.R. Bolt, who's also been on uh, Right Good before. Sorry, J.R. Bolt? Yep. He does our the design. So basically, we'll have the artwork and you'll see all the overlays and the design work and fonts and everything. He does all of that and he does a fantastic job. So what do you think draws people to seize the press? One thing that I do hear a lot is people say we have a very specific vibe. It's not something I initially set out to have a specific vibe and initially but i think over time we've established a particular kind of story or kind of writing that we tend to, to put out there often it's a bit off kilter the writing style is, is not something you're typically likely to see elsewhere that's one thing that people one major thing that have, has been gets pointed out to me a lot i think the cover art and design work as well that i've just mentioned the people have said that the we have a very specific kind of vibe for the cover art as well that i think attracts people to maybe check things out further like what kind of vibe? Again, unsettling, maybe a bit weird. Because um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I see a lot of magazines out there putting out cover art that's fine. Like it does its job. It's functional, I guess. But I don't know. You'd never see it and think about it again. Whereas when I'm looking for artwork for the covers, I I like to find something that'll. I don't know that'll. That stands on its own as artwork as well. It's not just cover art for a magazine. It's a, mm-hmm. it's interesting and thought provoking in and of itself. I think it's particularly important, sort of, when you're relying on social media as well to publicise things. If people are just scrolling through the feeds and you know they tend to just look at something for half a second and keep scrolling, if you want to have something that's going to attract someone's attention and keep them. And get them interested, and I think I think the the out cover art does that as well, and I, and and I think as well once I think once they have been been drawn in by that artwork, when once they start reading the stories as well, I think that that has kept people hooked as well. That again, that unsettling, weird, off kilter vibe of the a lot of the stories that we put out there. Does seize the press make any kind of money? How's it going financially? Because short fiction, especially short genre fiction. Famously, is a place where you're not gonna you're you're not gonna make the big bucks. <laughs> no, no. So, like, how do you monetize this? How? What's the financial system or the financial situation look like exactly? Well, we don't make any money. All of the money that we comes in from our Patreon goes towards paying our um, writers and creators and artists. And I don't ever envisage it being a money making venture. It's not the reason I set out to to do it. And any money that comes in in future will go towards increasing payment rates for our writers at the minute we pay three pence gbp per word which i think equates to around four four cents us um yeah. which is better than a lot of places pay to be honest but it's still nowhere near what yeah I want it's not it to a be. pro rate no by nowhere the near. sfwa no. standards um Semi-pro, i mean pro i guess we we actually did start out paying pro rates so when we first started i'd basically set some money aside that i'd saved and i kind of naively thought that by the time that money ran out 
Oh, that, of course. <laughs> that we'd have built up a, enough of a, a following and subscription subscriber base that you know. The, the money will just be rolling yeah. in. Yeah, and for short is, internet dark fiction. Yeah, and this is this is what I leftist this, publication. You're just gonna fucking throw a bunch of dollar bills on the bed and roll around in them like in Danger Diabolic. Yeah, it didn't work out that way. Like I said, didn't I was happen. very naive when I first started out. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> so when, when I, that... I get the sense from most people who start a magazine, that's how it goes. I'm like, this is going to be easy. And then you go like, oh, fuck, yeah. Jesus. It's still, as I say, it's been a lot more successful than I ever kind of thought it would be. Yeah, but, it uh, is doing really well. But the money-wise, it's still quite difficult yeah, to, to, to bring that, money that in. Is, that, is, that is publishing. Just in general, that is publishing. Yeah, but we do have a lot of... Um, our subscriber base is building. Hopefully, we'll be able to raise our payment rates with any additional money that comes in. None of that money will ever go to to us. It always go to our writers and artists. Yeah. Now, how do you spread the word about Seize the Press? How did you build a readership? Because as any creative, any artist knows, as any writer knows. It's hard to get eyeballs on your work, especially mm. when it's fiction. It's You can put out absolutely brilliant stuff, but that is no guarantee that people are going to come and look at it. So how did you build this audience? Honestly, I think it's just a combination of luck and just making something that stands out and is actually different and has kind of filled a, a, a void that people but, are looking but even to fill. Then, how did you promote it? How did um, you get people to see it? Because yeah. you even even if you have something that looks great and is great, that's still absolutely no guarantee. No, um, I mean ma mainly it was just through social media, and specifically just uh, Twitter. And um, I mean, did you have a social media strategy? Nope. <laughs> I mean, this is the okay. thing. I I am not a I'm not a marketing guy. Like I've never have no experience in marketing. My day job is I work in the National Health Service in the UK. So yeah, I work in healthcare. I'm not a marketing guy. I've no experience yeah. in anything like that. So and again, it all comes back to not really, not really knowing how much I didn't know. Basically, we would, I guess it was just me at the time, sort of post on Twitter. I would talk to people. Um, like who? What kind of people? Uh, Kurt Schiller and again, specifically. Posting is not enough to get people. No, to, no, definitely. You not. know, not yeah. at all. It's not definitely enough. not. No, but uh, Kurt Schiller specifically, the editor of Blood Knife. I spoke earlier about how someone pointed me in the direction of Blood Knife very early on, and mm -hmm. I messaged Kurt, and he was incredibly helpful in those early stages, and honestly, to the point where I don't think Seize the Press would even exist yeah. without Kurt. All that help he gave me early on without help about how to set things up and but specifically setting up the website as well because i think the website we didn't again you say posting isn't enough to get attention and it's not but i think just having a having something compelling to that fills a kind of niche if people are looking for something specific that isn't being provided and it kind of just spread through word of mouth i guess and, and i, I realized there's a, a very very big element of survivorship bias here I mean, I know, I know we're only a year and a half old, like touch wood, we keep going. But there is, a, there is a very big element of survivorship bias in that somehow I didn't have any experience and it worked out. But the only thing that I would say with regards to people who are wanting to get eyes on their work is that if you're submitting to magazines, submit to places that are going to put in the work to actually get your your eyes on, eyes on your work and who do stand out from the rest of the crowd because, and I say this even about magazines that I read and enjoy, a lot of them are quite samey. Like even the ones that publish good stories, there's there's nothing that makes them stand out from the next one. So if a magazine has got a particular vibe, as people say we do, or people read it for a particular reason, and it's filling that kind of niche that people are looking for, I think people are more likely to look at stuff like that that fills that kind of niche as opposed to something that's just putting out a magazine with like generic cover art and isn't really doesn't differentiate itself from from anything else. And and again, there's writers don't necessarily have any control over who decides to accept their work. 
And I guess this is more of a problem with the publishing side of things than the writing, writing side of things. I think a lot of magazines have a lot of work to do when it comes to I don't want to say marketing themselves. I don't like that term because, as I say, I don't really have that background and marketing to me has a bit it's of It's a... fine. Just, you know, this is a business. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're doing a creative thing, but yeah. you are selling a product. You are marketing a product. It's kind of, you might as well own up to it, you know? Yeah. It doesn't make sense to me to be embarrassed about that. This is just the reality of the industry we work in. Yeah, well, just, just, just I guess in that case, magazines just being better at talking about themselves, marketing themselves, differentiating themselves from what other, whatever other generic sci-fi horror magazine is vying for people's attention. And I think that's something we have been successful at. People do think that, we, that we're different and we put out something that you're not necessarily going to find elsewhere. And I think that that's a big part of what gets eyes on Seize the Press stories. All right. How has Seize the Press changed over the course of its so far very brief existence? Yeah, well, as I said, we're only a 18 months old. Yeah, we've been around for a year and a half. And I think over that time, we've we've really kind of nailed down that vibe that we've been talking about. I think early on, I don't know, maybe, maybe there might be some stories from earlier issues that I perhaps wouldn't decide to put in the current iteration of the magazine. Not because I didn't, don't think they're good stories, but because over the course of our existence, I think we've nailed down something very specific that we look for. And I guess another thing is we've moved up, we've moved offline, which was a big thing. We do still have our website and our stories do go up online for non-subscribers, but we do also produce an ebook copy of the magazine now, which goes out to our subscribers as soon as the new issue comes out. That was a, a big thing that I'd always wanted to do. The next thing is i hopefully want to produce physical copies at some point but that has its own problems and issues we've expanded as well so it used to just be me it was literally just me when we first started out we've since doubled our staff i guess you can call us <laughs> so we, we've took on carlo Yeager rodriguez as our non-fiction editor carlo was in the first issue of the magazine he submitted a story called vanishing which was received very very well it was a story that had been knocked back from a lot of other magazines. Um, Could you talk a for, little bit about Vanishing? What is it about? What drew you to it? And why do you think it found a home and seized the press and not anywhere else? Uh, so Vanishing is... Um... Love it. <laughs> yeah, stop attacking the bed. That's not a scratching post. You have a scratching Okay. Thank I, was, you. I was hoping the cats might make an appearance. <laughs> Yeah, um, so being a bad girl. <laughs> Vanishing was, it's a story, it's a, a story about the, specifically the um, Latinx experience in America with the situation on the, on the borders. I mean, I say when Trump was president, but the whole point of the story is that the child separation um, and all those horrors that were going on under Trump also carried on under the once Joe Biden was elected. And that's kind of the whole idea of the story. It doesn't specifically say any of this. If, if Carlo had sent me a story saying, hey, Trump bad and Biden also just as bad, and this is what's going on at the border, I'd be like, okay, okay, whatever. But like, it, none of that's explicitly stated. It's, it's, it's a sort of story that digs into that experience in a very nuanced way without, without, being, without being didactic in that way that I didn't want to see. And it's a very powerful story. And I think, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing here, but, I think the reason it had potentially been knocked back from a lot of other places is because, I guess people, some people might get angry at me for this, but I think once Trump went and Biden was elected and the Democrats were back in power in America, and I, I'm, from, I'm from the UK, as you can probably tell, but we get a lot of US politics and culture kind of by osmosis. But I think from what, my, what, I, from what I could tell was that once the Democrats were back in power, no one really wanted to think about this anymore. They thought everything's the bad man's gone we can fix everything our guy's in power and we don't want to be reminded or told that everything bad that was going on before is still going on there's that whole element of we can go back to brunch now yeah and i think my, my perspective is that i think it probably made a lot of people uncomfortable they didn't want to think about it but that's exactly the reason why 
it was the kind of thing we were looking to publish. And as I say, that was in our first issue. So I think it kind of set a tone for the kind of thing that we wanted to, to do going forward. Yeah. And and again, then we we published a nonfiction piece on Carlo in the next issue as well. He wrote a piece about the Netflix adaptation of Cowboy Bebop and how it kind of defanged the original story. Not long after that, I think it was a, two or th- a couple of issues later, I'd asked if he'd be interested in coming on as our non-fiction editor and he and he agreed uh yeah so now carlo's part of the seize the press team and yeah okay where does seize the press fit in among the rest of the short sci-fi fantasy magazine ecosystem you've talked a lot about how it fulfills a certain niche like can you tell me in more specificity what that niche is and and sort of how it's getting along, if it is getting along, or if it's not getting along with the other SFF mags. Like, are are, are you fulfilling a a necessary role in the ecosystem, or are you an invasive species? You know, <laughs> uh, well, I wouldn't describe our, ourselves that way. Maybe some others would. I don't know. But I, I don't know. I guess in a lot of ways, we don't really fit in among a lot of the more established magazines. Um, I mean. I, I, big part of the reason why I wanted to start publishing the kind of fiction we do is because they don't get the space that they deserve in a lot of the bigger, more mainstream short fiction magazines. Yeah, we don't really fit in among a lot of the the bigger magazines, but I mean, I guess at the same time, there is a there does seem to have been a resurgence lately in the kind of publications that are putting out the weirder non-mainstream stuff i think there's so there's tower magazine which has recently come out mouthfeel which is getting ready to publish its first issue these are magazines that are publishing stuff that you would never (laughs) would would never see the time of day in some of the bigger establishment magazines why not i guess because because they make people uncomfortable people don't like discomfort um yeah you see you see a lot of the, the the stories that are being nominated well at least winning awards anyway the, the the ones voted for by readers readers in these ecosystems or at least the ones that are active in them anyway and the paying members of the organizations they don't like discomfort they don't like being made to feel things i guess they don't want to question anything they don't want to be, they don't want to feel uncomfortable there's a a niche of people who who do want that and maybe it is a minority it probably is a minority but it was a minority that I don't think was being served in the way they deserved. So in that in that way, I, I guess we don't really fit in very well among some of the bigger, more establishment magazines. I mean, there are still good ones. Don't get me wrong. There's there's the Dark. There's Apex publishes a lot of good stuff. Clark's World, which is a science fiction magazine, isn't necessarily publishing the kind uncomfortable things in the same way necessarily, but they do publish still good stories. So yeah, there is definitely good stuff out there. I'm definitely not saying that we're in a desert here and there's nothing good out there that before we came along. It's absolutely not the case. But I do think that... No, you should say it. Don't be so timid. <laughs> Seize the Press is a very bold magazine. You should not be afraid to be bold. Well, thank you. Be like, yeah, there were other magazines before us, but they sucked ass. And here we are. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm... I'm, I'm Clark's I'm, World run a story called Eating Bees from the Ass of God? No, it wouldn't. No, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. <laughs> More's the shame. <laughs> and again, that was in our first issue. I think that was in the first yeah, issue. Yeah, that is a that uh, is a strong that is a that is a bold choice. Yeah. So there was to that release that in your first issue. There was that story and vanishing, and a few, obviously the fuels that we ran. I think it was a yeah, it was a bold statement to make right out of the gate. <laughs> Just hi there. Here we are, fuckers. What up? <laughs> yeah. Are you willing to talk about why you opted not to give tour reviews advanced copies of each issue? Yeah, I mean. I'll talk about it. I'm not sure how spicy we'll get. We'll see. And maybe, oh, <laughs> maybe... get spicy. We love spice. <laughs> we'll see. Let's see. Let's see how this goes. Okay. So I guess for, I'll explain the situation first of all. So I was contacted by the person who runs the short fiction roundup for Tor.com, um, which is the sort of magazine, online magazine that the imprint Tor runs online. Yeah. It, now Tor.com is different from Tor.com, right? Yeah, so 
it's, it's very confusing. So basically, you've got tall it's books. It's really, really good. It's 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 like a stand-up comedy routine from like the yeah, late night. It's really strange. So you've got you've got tall so books odd. who publish books. You've got tall.com who are also publish books, but are different in some way. And then you've also and got Tor. The book publisher's website is Tor. Dot com. Yeah, but what it's... is Tor.com's website URL? Is it like Tor.com.com? It's, it's surreal. It's a very strange situation. I don't know how they differentiate themselves, but well, basically... The, it's really <laughs> in this in, the, in this instance, the Tor.com that we're talking about is the online magazine that they run. And as part of that, they run a monthly short fiction roundup of what the, the reader has been enjoying and reading that month. I was contacted by the person who runs that, and they asked if they Sorry, could... I just looked it up. I had to interject, but... The sci-fi fantasy publisher is Tor.com is the website, and that's Tor. Yeah. But their their other, or their, maybe I'm getting this backwards. Maybe this is the book publisher. I don't fucking know. But there's Tor.com is the company name, and its URL is publishing.tor.com, <laughs> which makes very good sense. And no one could reasonably con- be confused by the two of these things. It's, it, it, it's very good. It's very good to me. You know, all I'll say is it's a good job that they're a multinational corporation because otherwise I think people would just wouldn't give them the time of day. It's too confusing. <laughs> but they have that clout behind them. So yeah, I was contacted by the person who runs their monthly fic- short fiction roundup and they asked if we would want to give them advance copies of each new issue to read and potentially feature in their monthly short fiction roundup. Um which is a very good way to get eyeballs on your work. Yeah, it is. And a debate. So I debated a lot about whether I wanted to be included in this because, as you say, it's. I think Tor.com has something like 1.5 million people visiting the website each month. Um, and of course, not all of those people are visiting the specific short fiction roundup, but all the same, it's, it's going to have a, a wide reach. So it's, it would be a very good way to get other people to be aware of Seize the Press and potentially get more eyeballs on our stories. And so for that reason, I debated about whether, because as an editor, right, I I have a kind of obligation to the writers who submit to us and who we publish to, to get people reading their stories. It's the whole point of submitting stories. You want to get paid for your work and you want people to read your work. But when it comes to Tor, one of the reasons we, when it comes back to the reasons we set up Seize the Press, Tor is kind of part of that ecosystem, like a big part of that ecosystem of this kind of shallow, fandom-centric publishing ecosystem. So a lot of the stuff that you see on Tor.com, on the online magazine, it's all like listicles, shallow reviews they think they're doing like a read-along of some brandon sanderson series at the minute where they just talk about what part of the book they're up to at the minute and kind of get to get excited about what's going on in whatever brandon sanderson book they're reading that whole ecosystem is like the antithesis of what i want stp to be part of it's part of the founding ethos that we didn't really want to be part of that we wanted to build something separate um, yeah, and, and something I want to point out, too, about Tor is that it's a little weird, but within sci-fi fantasy, people kind of talk about it like it's this scrappy little publisher, mm. and it's not. It's very much a corporate publisher. Yeah, Tor is an imprint of Macmillan, I think, which is one of the big yeah. four publishers. So, so yeah, like they have this, I don't know how they've managed it or cultivated this, this idea, but yeah, they have this kind of scrappy underdog image there. Uh, but really, and they're yeah, not no, at they're all a, underdogs, a not even remotely. Multinational corporation, one of the big four publishers, and and again, I, I want to say it's not like a we're not boycotting them at all for that reason. We've even we got should. Uh, we should throw a brick through their window, go full <laughs> antifa. There's do it. So we've even got like we've even got a review of a tour book and seize the, the press literally. Get in there and seize their press and like take it. Well, that was the uh, yeah, that's the play on words that the title, the name of the magazine, was players on. Yeah, we've even got a. A review of a tour book and the upcoming issue. Zach Gillen has reviewed uh, The Archive Undying, which is a new tour release, and it gets a very positive review. I've read some tour books in the past that I've liked. I think they published the Baru Cormoran books. They've published Tade mm-hmm. Thompson. And even despite the 
horrific artwork they put alongside it. They even republished uh, the Black Company books. Um, oh yeah, the terrible. Oh, it's so bad. It's so bad. It's so offensive. Like clip art, clip art covers. Really, really bad. I think that is that the one that used Warhammer 40k figurines in front of a fog machine. Yeah, it's so bad. Which is, is them? The, the books are so good as well, man. It's so it's so upsetting because they're some of the best books I've ever read. They're just fantastic. But just to disrespect them with cover art like that, it's very sad. But yeah, but yeah, it's not it's not a boycott of tall because you know big bad publishing it's specifically because tor.com is part of that kind of really shallow um publishing ecosystem that we set see the press up to kind of be against i guess mm. so it, it, it felt a little bit hypocritical to be to be saying yeah well we set up our our magazine specifically because we don't like the kind of stuff that publications like you are doing but hey yeah please uh go ahead and include our our stories in your monthly roundup and to be honest i i looked at the roundup itself i had a look at a few of them to see whether it would be worth as part of the weighing up the pros and cons i had a look and even aside from just getting eyes on them the roundups themselves were really not good when you read a review of a book do you expect to have some exploration of the themes or like how it made you feel or right it was basically just a short summary of what the person read and maybe like, hey, this story could be about this, but this is like the plot. Oh. This 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 is the plot of the story. <laughs> That's basically all it was. So it's, it's like just, a kid's book report almost. Yeah, yeah it's just shallow no- nothingness. It's, there's just nothing to it. and I didn't really want to be part of it. And I, I did feel bad in some ways because, like I said, I do feel like as the editor of the magazine, I have... An obligation to our writers to get people reading their work but at the same time i think we're a magazine that has kind of that strong ethos that we mentioned earlier and i i, I don't want to I, I don't want to undermine that i think like it's what it's one of the reasons people like what we do and i think to undermine that would just be yeah it would undermine everything we do i think do you think though at 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 very least the fact that tor is paying attention to you that's probably a really positive sign, right? Oh, definitely. I mean, in some ways, it kind of felt pretty good to be like, "Yeah, thanks, but no thanks." When I'm interested, <laughs> from like one of the one of the big publishing one of the big publishing guys. But yeah, it's definitely a it's definitely a positive sign that they're paying attention to us, or, or they want to pay attention to us at least. Yeah, it's not. I, I never expected when I started the magazine to have Tor asking for advanced copies of the magazine to review. What have been some of the bigger bumps along the way? Oh, there've been a bunch, but I—it's stuff that I hope hasn't been too visible to the people reading the magazine. Mostly, it's been me desperately trying to learn everything I hadn't realised I needed to know beforehand, and kind of scrambling to get issues out on time while I'm working a full-time job. So it's really hard, man, to to do to do everything I wanted want to do with Seize the Press requires a. It requires a lot more time than I currently have. Oh, yeah. And it can be very stressful and frustrating, I guess, knowing that it could be so much more if I just had that time and all and, and money. So I think, I think I'd, I'd probably, I'd, I'd like to improve the website. I'd start like to make physical copies of the magazine. We've had like a few requests for like merch, like t-shirts and stuff. First off, that's a bunch of other stuff I'd need, need to learn how to do. <laughs> like I say, it requires money and time that you don't really have at the minute. So I, I guess the biggest bumps are just that definitely at the start, like I didn't know what I was doing. I hope that stuff, and I, and I think I think it is stuff that didn't necessarily translate and or come across to the people, like the end product and people actually reading reading the thing. It's all stuff that I've been doing in the background, floundering around trying to get things out on time and yeah, get get all the edits done. But I, yeah, I, I guess that's just like the normal normal stuff for running a magazine. But it's stuff that I had to learn on the fly because I was. I was naive enough to to not know what I didn't know. Yeah, I think that I think now I think we've I think we've weathered the storm to the point where I'm at least notionally competent. I hope that's good. All right, now tell me about some of the your proudest achievements with Seize the Press, like some stories that you've been 
proudest to say, I put this out or, or maybe responses to it that you've been incredibly proud of receiving? Probably the proudest achievement is probably having so many stories make the shortlist for Tenebris Press's Brave New Weird Award. I think, I mean, let me just give a shout out to Tenebris Press. They're fucking brilliant. Um, oh, I, yeah, they do a lot of good yeah, shit. Yeah, they're so good. Matt Blestone um, and Alex Woodrow, who are the people who run it, they're just some of the most dedicated, hardworking people I, I know. They're just fantastic. They've put out a lot of fantastic, really weird, strange horror novellas. They've put a lot of novellas out. Just, just really good stuff that... You know, I, I, I doubt many other presses would have took a chance on. They ran a Best of New Weird Horror, horror Award uh, last year, was it? Was it this year? I don't know. Time. What is time? Mm-hmm. And we had four stories, four Seize the Press stories shortlisted for, for that award. It was the m- most amount of stories that any single publication had shortlisted for that. So we had What It's Like by Riley Tao which was this um, incredible kind of stream of consciousness, kind of scream of rage by a trans writer about their experience of being trans. All these stories will be available on our website if people want to go and read them, by the way. So What It's Like by Riley Tao was nominated. Those Who Forget and Those Who Perish by K.W. Colliard, which was this kind of, I guess it was a kind of secondary world, dark fantasy body horror story. I don't know. I don't really know how to categorize a lot of these things because they defy categorization a lot of the time, but it was kind of a story about a like a horse kingdom where women were kind of stitched up sort of Dr. Moreau style to horses. It was kind of a story about living as a woman in that kind of patriarchal society that took women's bodies for granted and used them how they saw fit. The other one that was nominated was What the Gula Said on Thursday of the Dead by Sonia Suleiman, which was a which she describes as a Palestinian Gothic, which was about settler colonialism in Palestine. And again, a subject that I don't think a lot of presses would feel comfortable highlighting, mm. but um, it's, it's something that's always been very important to me. The whole Palestine solidarity movement is what got me into left-wing politics originally, to be honest. Um, so it's something that's all always been important to me. So I was very happy that that got a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. And Low Tide Jenny by Bitter Corella. Oh, that one's great. Yeah, it's fantastic. That was So that, that not only made the shortlist, that was actually included, that actually won one of the awards and was included in the mm-hmm. Brave New Weird anthology. Yeah, it's a really strange story. Bitter Corella's great. They write a lot of fantastic stuff. But this one's, it, it's kind of a take on... On the Chambers story, it includes a kind of uh, element of Carcosa from The King in Yellow. There's been a lot of sort of riffing on on that kind of idea, but I think Corella did a fantastic job in their own way. And yeah, that was that actually won one of the awards. Yeah, fantastic story. Some of the others, like I think you mentioned uh, Eating Bees from the Ass of God by Joe Koch. Uh, that one was... That one still gets a lot of attention today, <laughs> in no small part, perhaps because of the provocative title. Yeah. But once you start reading the story, it's this, oh, I don't know, it's, it's this really kind of gross, but beautifully poetic in a lot of ways, cosmic horror story. Actually, one story that I think it does get talked about, but deserves to be talked about a lot more is uh, Reno Walled City by Name Kabir, which mm-hmm. is the only sort of cyberpunk story that we've that we've run and it's a great story because it's a cyberpunk story that actually nails that kind of alienation and kind of ennui that some of the early cyberpunk really nailed down but kind of became less and less important as the genre became just a bit more about i don't know empty aesthetics which is the sad story of cyberpunk, unfortunately. But when cyberpunk's done brilliantly, it's it's when it's done well, oh, it's, it's great. It's great. But like, yeah, there's a lot of people who kind of go, look, it's got it's got robots and yeah, squares, ro- ro- robot and arms, kind of all it is, and neon and robot arms. That's yeah, yeah. cyborgs who <laughs> say fuck a lot. That's what cyberpunk is. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah, but this this story really kind of nailed that specific kind of really harking back to that early cyberpunk 
that really I mean, I, I, I say like sort of anti-capitalist critique, but I, William Gibson turned became a kind of weird liberal in his in his later days. I think he, he has some, a lot of these guys do. Yeah, he has some, a lot of people kind of. Well, you're you're comfortable and middle aged, and yeah. and then your politics sort of become whatever makes you feel okay about being comfortable and middle aged. Yeah, <laughs> but certainly, yeah, Reno World City remind me a lot of like of of the. Of Neuromancer, which is one of my favorite books, he really nailed that 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 early cyberpunk vibe. Okay, uh, so why don't we turn to the future? Do you have any big plans for where Seize the Press might go? Where would you like to see it go? One thing I've always really wanted to do is be able to produce print issues of the magazine. But yeah. my God, it's that expensive. The shipping would be hell. Yeah, it's so expensive. Um, International shipping is like. Yeah, it's a fucking nightmare. And I mean, again, it's something that I would have to learn to do because I've never really, I've never put a physical copy of a magazine together myself. I think yeah. if I was gonna do it, I'd probably keep it quiet for a little while first, and maybe produce a prototype copy or something, and see see if it's something I'm actually capable of doing first. Um, yeah. But certainly, print issues are something I'd love. I'd really love to see print issues. It's something people are always asking for, and I'm just like, oh, I'm really sorry, we. We have very limited money. <laughs> yeah, it, it costs money, especially to make something that looks really nice. Yeah. If you're going to print in color with illustrations. And that's the thing. Something really slick. Yeah, if we were going to do it, I'd want to do it properly. I'd want, I want it to look good. Yeah. I'd want it to be good quality print. And I want there to be artwork in there, which would also mean like paying artists for... Because I probably want like an, a, a, for each story and accompanying art... Uh, piece of oh, art yeah. i mean i know that's not strictly necessary but it's just something i would like to do if we we're going to do do a print issue i'd like to do it properly and do it well and yeah. i know it's something that dark matter magazine were doing yeah. and they did it well um unfortunately it ain't cheap nope certainly not and it's just yeah. not something we have the, the money for the, at the minute unfortunately the other thing is that and this is like a complete pipe dream and not something i even i'm even sure i'm cut out to do but people have also asked if we ever planned to start like an actual press publishing like books or novellas um mm. and again that's something that i would love 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 to do but it's, it's i absolutely don't have the time for it at the minute and it's also something that i again have no experience with but i never had experience running a magazine either and that's turned out okay i'd, I'd certainly want to look into that but i'd, I'd want to build up some experience beforehand maybe like work with someone putting out an anthology is just helping on a project or something by learning how to put out a book first because like again yeah. I'd, I'd want to i'd want to do it properly i think i'd owe that to our writers um yeah yeah mm -hmm. it's not something i want to jump into but yeah those those are two things i'd really love to do in the future yeah okay uh well why don't we wrap it up i'd ask you if you had anything you wanted to promote but i think that's pretty much but what been what this entire episode <laughs> Yeah. Would you like to promote something? Yes, you would like to promote something. It's called Seize the Press magazine. Yeah, absolutely. What is the URL? Uh, so you can visit us at seizethepress.com. So you'll be able to read a lot of our past issues. There's a lot of stories up there for free that we've run in past issues. If you do want to become a subscriber, you can find us at patreon.com slash seizethepress and you'll get access to every issue immediately once it's released. You'll be able to read the whole thing and you'll get an ebook copy of the magazine and you'll also be ensuring that we can continue paying our writers, which is something that we believe in very strongly. Yeah, well, that's good. Well, thank you for coming on. I'm going to wrap it up because Harley is getting feisty. He's, <laughs> he's paying some attention, to getting near that time of the evening where I feed them. So thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. If you like what you heard, head to patreon.com slash write good and subscribe. Until next time, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with Raquel S. Benedict. Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Theme song by OK Glass. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittystasis.com. That is R-I-T-E at kittystasis.com you'd like to support us please visit our patreon at patreon.com slash write good this has been a kitty Steezes production <laughs>
kittysneezes.com in color.